Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Make it so. Make it so. Make, make, make it so. Make it so. And now, making it so with Mike Mann and Josh Bald. Hello and welcome to Making It So. My name is Mike Mann. With me as always, Josh Bald. Hello, Mike Mann. Hello, faithful listeners of Making It So. We've had some... Uplifting news lately in the world of Trek. We've also had some really bummed out news in the world of Trek lately. So we'll cover both and find a happy medium here this week on Making It So. Yeah, the sad news. uh, Aaron Eisenberg passed away. Uh, The timing uh, for us is we're talking about it now. And we know it happened a while ago. But as far as our episodes go, here we are talking about it. And Aaron, uh, great portrayal of Nog, of course. DS9 being my jam, uh, he was a character I could certainly identify with throughout his arc. And that was kind of the thing that we've heard, is that he had the most, probably the most uh, fleshed out, and for a lot of people, the most satisfying character arc for anybody in that series. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think it really struck a chord with a lot of people, his journey, um, going from just Jake's friend to uh, first Ferengi and Starfleet, to combat veteran right so yeah aaron eisenberg seemed like a really genuinely good human being he was on a podcast uh with uh uh Sirak lofton there you go Sirak lofton uh the seventh rule uh and uh just seemed like a really good guy he was in the star trek shitposting group he was joined he really that, yeah he joined that group and uh made some some funny posts occasionally uh just about him being there and such. Uh, and uh, just seemed like a good guy. So it's a really tragedy that he's gone so soon. Right. Um, but uh, in the uplifting news, we've got some Star Trek stuff going on today, actually, Saturday. Um, at Star Trek, uh, at the New York City Comic Con, there's a Star Trek Universe panel going on where I guess all sorts of news is going to be coming out. Uh, obviously, we're recording early, so we don't have the scoop, the skinny. Wait, I don't you're have not my, there on the ground? I know. I don't what? have my normal my normal uh, behind-the-scenes access. Right. Oh, boy, our crack reporter. 
I've got shit. He doesn't. He lost his transporter credits. Yeah, but there should be a new Picard trailer coming out today. So watch out for that. It's been tweeted that it'll blow people away. I'm excited. I would like to be blown away. There you go. All right. Let's turn our attention to today's episode, Mike. Who are we talking to today? Absolutely. Uh, today's episode is a great one, and it's a special one because we're talking to two people. Wow. Does that I know. Double, that doubles our fun. It doubles our fun. It doubles our pleasure. It uh, double the time, <clears throat> which is probably good for our listeners. Right. <laughs> we kept it We kept it uh, as brief as ever. Yes. Uh, but uh, we're talking to Jim Wolvington and Sean Varney. Yes, sir. Jim Wolvington, award-winning sound editor for the Trek series, and he was the director of All Sound, I believe, for the Trek pictures. Right. And, I mean, he's responsible for crafting so many of the sounds that are just iconic to those of us who listen to the shows. Absolutely. I was really contemplating throughout the interview or throughout editing that interview with those guys, just dropping in sound after sound after sound. <laughs> and But that would take a lot of effort and also annoy people. So... You know, on the one hand, work. On the other hand, I would get to annoy all these wonderful people that listen to us. So, called it yeah, a Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can see your catch-22 there. Yeah, tough times uh, for me. Uh, but I was excited, of course, because I'm a I'm a s- amateur sound guy, and I wanted to hear from the pros, so I, I got some tips uh, and really got into some of the nitty-gritty. I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with them. Oh, I think it? I think you will. Yeah, absolutely. Let's uh, Let's press the button. All right, computer. Speaking of sound effects, <laughs> can you please play back our conversation with Jim Wolvington and Sean Varney? Well, hello and welcome to Making It So, a conversation about Star Trek with those who helped create it. Our guests today helped create the soundscapes to the shows you love. Sean Varney was a sound editor and designer on Insurrection and sound designer on Enterprise. And Jim Wolfington was supervising sound effects editor on TNG, all four TNG movies, DS9, Voyager, and the pilot to Enterprise. He won four Emmys for his work on TNG. We are thrilled to welcome to the show Sean Varney and Jim Wolfington. Hello, guys. How are you? Pretty darn good. I'm doing great, although it really should be Jim Wolvington and then also Sean Varney. Uh, Jim, Jim not only started off with Next Generation, but he essentially invented single-handedly the entire sound of the modern Star Trek, oh, wow. everything except the Kirk series. So I'll give you that $20 later, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really great to have both of you. Uh, our show is, this is going to be our 19th episode, and we haven't talked to any sound people yet. We've talked to writers, directors, producers, uh, visual effects, and that sort of thing. But sound is something I've been interested in for a long time. So this is kind of pudding for me. I'm pretty excited to talk to you guys. We're ready to go. Excellent. Well, I guess the first question is, how did you guys get into sound editing? Uh, What are the prerequisites, you know, in case I want to change careers? You know, it's kind of a long story for me. I mean, I was basically a professional student in college with no ambition to graduate in anything. Uh-huh. I just took classes that I was interested in. And uh, the one class that I spent the most hours was an electronic music composition class at the University of Utah. Okay. And, uh, you know, my dad was convinced that I was going to be a janitor for the my entire life. And <laughs> he wasn't that far off. I got close. But uh, <laughs> from, from there, I went to work as a music editor for the world's first digital recording company called Soundstream. 
and in turn I started working for Glen Glen Sound in in Los Angeles. It's it's a little more complicated than just that, but uh, that's the nuts and bolts of it. And for me, it was pretty much the same. Just a little bit later, I was failing out of college because I was spending so much time uh, figuring out multi-track recording and doing music and playing with bands. And uh, as I sort of left the educational sphere, uh, Jim was there and needed somebody to sort of do the the intro level work as he was moving back to Vermont at the time uh-huh. and w- was one of the first telecommuters, really, um, during a time when that wasn't known, popular, cool, or even possible. <laughs> um and uh, and so he needed some slave labor, so I started apprenticing him uh, at that point. What a yeah! About what year is this? Because that that idea of that distance uh, work does seem pretty recent. Nineteen ninety five. So you know, oh, ten yeah. years after the show had been running, basically, or nine years anyway. The internet was not an option for file sharing, at least on the output uh, part of right. part of the job was recording everything to a tape and running to FedEx and trying to get it to Los Angeles on time. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah, we had an ISBN line that had a baud rate of like 128 or something like that. <laughs> uh, so which at the time was... We could move microscopic files. Uh, over <laughs> that was... It was ridiculously uh, impossible. Right, because I imagine you guys are recording uh, high-quality wave files and moving those over. Uh, yeah. That kind of line isn't going to work very well. Yeah. yeah, everything was 50 kilohertz. That's a, you know, big, big files that would have taken, at that point, you know, months to right. move over. Fortunately, uh, the we were working with a library that also existed out in California uh-huh. uh, with, a, with a co-worker, and Unless we were sending unique files, we could send a set of instructions, sort of like a, a MIDI uh, set of instructions, a lot more complicated, but uh, and they could plug in existing sound files so we wouldn't actually have to send each and every sound file um, if there was some sort of last second uh, thing that had to take place. But if we... You know, if we had a a large suite of of work that we had to do, had to uh, capture that onto a tape and send that over. Oh, wow. so you're saying you out in Los Angeles then they had the the basics. So they had the doors, the phasers, the ship hum, that sort of thing. That's always in every right. episode. That sort of thing. Yeah, we had identical studios between Vermont and California. Okay. So you know what we did here in Vermont could be recreated in the studio in in Los Angeles. Oh, okay. I was curious about how that would work, especially in a year, you know, around 1995, like we said, with those slow internet speeds. So you're either hustling tapes or are giving those kind of scripted uh, directions so that they can plug them in. Is that that's yeah? Mostly, mostly files that allowed them to recreate what we had done here in Vermont, okay. uh, you know, with a, with a computer based system that they had there. Although we were quite dependent on FedEx, not only for the delivery of the uh, animations that you know would require last-minute uh, sound work, and uh, so there was a lot of stress when we had snowstorms, and you know, you're always worried that FedEx was either not going to get a tape in or a tape out, and you know you just cannot fail to make a deadline. It's just it's impossible. So it, there's stress involved in that for sure. Right. And- and during the mixing stage, where all the producers are sitting there on the mixer mixing stage with all the the three mixers and all that kind of stuff, and and if they want some last second edit done to your sound effects, and you're on the phone, you know, across the country, and they need something right away, that immediately means that anything that you create, you have to upload, and you're just sitting there tapping your foot, begging the internet to not crash at that time. <laughs> 
Wow. You guys are raising all these great uh, images of and, and making me feel panicky. Just <laughs> <laughs> uh, make me feel panicky again. I, yeah. There's, there, it was stressful there. There's so much to mine here. I guess, so as far as the sound goes, uh, the video at the at the point you receive the video, right? So you're you're working off of video? Correct. Okay. So that part's done. So is sound one of the last things to be added as far as is the last thing oh, okay so sounds the end of the line okay end of the line yeah wow okay so then you're putting together your sound suite for a specific episode and then you send that off and uh and then sean you said you guys are on the line with the producers while they're mixing it down and letting you know uh what needs to be changed deleted added that sort of thing correct yeah. wow Sorry, and the mixing process is qu- is quite the deal i i went out there only once to to see the whole process go and there are three professional mixers each with a suite of what like 60 64 uh, tracks each wow. one is just for sound effects one is yeah. for all the the dialogue right and the others for the music and okay. they're all separately doing their own unique mixes i mean these are incredibly healed professionals who've just done everything like every movie you've ever watched and so they're there all the producers are there a lot of the technical people are there it's it's a big room filled with a lot of people and then ring ring oh i hate this monster sound you got to do something new <laughs> oh gosh <laughs> oh wow uh that yeah we were i wanted to ask her i was curious about that as far as because you guys do the sound effects so music doesn't really enter into it for you and dialogue doesn't really enter in it, into it for you either Nope. Okay. Well, Sorry, occasionally Jim. we would have to uh, come up with foreign languages or alien languages and things like that. But even that would be considered a sound effect rather than dialogue, even though it came from the mouth of an alien. Oh, I see. So, yeah. So, oh, yeah. One of Mike's favorite is the the binars that talk. Uh, Mike, you go ahead and do it because it'll. it'll... <laughs> <laughs> you guys might remember that one a little bit. I actually do remember that. I want <laughs> that one. Yeah. Now you won an Emmy for that one. Yeah, fantastic. How how did you go about creating the the vocal styles there? I can tell you that. I mean, I remember that only because this sound that had that came from their mouths had to sound like it was coming from their mouth, uh-huh. and yet be alien. And so what I did is I sampled them actually speaking on you know on the set, and I chopped like a, a ten word sentence into these little micro bits. And I rated oh. across my, my Synclavier keyboard so that if I swept my hand from left to right across the keyboard, you could actually hear the sentence articulated. But if you just played one key, you'd get a microsyllable that would last like a tenth of a second. Right. And then what I did is I, I put a repeat function on these little syllables so that it would repeat that syllable over and over and over at whatever rate I determined. And then I could play you know this repeating syllable with different keys or, or a different syllable with a different key and come up with something that sounded almost human and yet machine-like as well. I don't know if that is a good explanation, but that's the best I can do. <laughs> no, that's fascinating. I can picture it right now with the keyboard, yeah, and you playing the actual sounds. Yeah. So that must have been kind of fun, too, to, to, to create. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it, it was a, a fun and uh, fulfilling job once you got past the long hours, the the crazy deadlines, and all that. Uh, you you were able to do some pretty cool creative things as time went by. Yeah, yeah, we've the people we've talked to have, I mean, famously Trek has this tight turnaround time, and you guys are a part of that. And it looks like like you said, you're at the end of the line, so you're really feeling 
the push or the crunch. But in those days leading up to it, what does that look like? Uh, are you what do you receive as far as direction? So, Jim, you said uh, it had to sound alien, but come out of their mouths. Is that all you're getting? Are you getting that kind of description? And then it's up to you. For every episode, you meet with a director, producer, um, and you have conversations about what should happen. And for 90% of the show, it's pretty self-explanatory. If you're in the bridge, you want to hear bridge sounds, mm-hmm. of course. Um, but if it's an alien or from some alien planet, then you know they would try and vaguely describe to you what they wanted to hear, you know, whether <laughs> it was meant to be menacing, whether it was meant to be you know erotic, you know. All kinds of weird adjectives might get used, and then you have to try and apply that to, you know, some sound that you're going to fit into the show. And it's, it's, it was often a challenge. One of my favorite was they asked to have the sound be more green. <laughs> <laughs> All right, no problem. Yes, well, we turn that filter. green button. That's no problem. <laughs> 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 yeah, how does one how does one deal with that? Because we we've even with script writers, they say make it better, and that's like that's all they get, right? That's the note they get. Well, they don't know how to make it better. So, how do you make a sound more green? What you do is you do two or three options, right? Um, and you just do the best you can. Do something that that fits. Usually, give them the best option last, um, okay. and, uh, and just go that way. So that you know, obviously. They have some sort of vision, and whichever one of those options fits best, there you go. Okay. That, that kind of parallels what some of the visual effects people have told us is they said, make sure you give them something they hate mm-hmm. uh, so that the other stuff looks, looks and sounds great, I imagine. Yes. And you can, you can kind of subtly point them to the one that you think is best, I suppose. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> the one that you spent two hours crafting versus the one that took you five minutes, yes. Right. And I'm sure that one gets picked sometimes too, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, yeah, I was curious about that myself. Uh, the just the idea of like maybe you had just kind of threw up a hail mary at some point, making some kind of simple sound, and that that's the one they went with. Uh, what comes to mind for me is uh, the show, The X Files. The the sound guys were having trouble coming up with something for this weapon that could kill aliens, and uh, supposedly, as the story goes, a guy just walked by a microphone and made the sound. Uh, a sound, and that's what they went with, and it it yeah. fit. So I don't know if you guys ever had anything like that going on. There were always desperate design moments for me. I remember <laughs> one show we had this like fibrous uh, alien that was invading the ship, and uh, you know I was just literally running out of time, and so I ended up wetting my hand and going into the bathroom that's right off of my studio and squeaking the glass with my wet fingertips. Ah. And processing that sound and that that work, you know, it, it's amazing what you can come up with when you're desperate. <laughs> no, that's yeah. great. So that that I was curious about too that idea, that creativity behind it, because you essentially, uh, other than the sometimes vague directions you get, uh, it's up to you. So, yeah. are you generally going digital with making your sounds, or or, or do you find yourself doing a lot of that kind of thing? Uh, getting your hands wet and messing with mirrors and that sort of thing. I'd say the source for 99% of everything that I did, and Sean might be different, but was mostly uh, organic in nature, you know, real sounds that were manipulated in some fashion. So, you know, like the squeaking glass, I would transpose down an octave or two, and it would, um, you know, sound different than just simply squeaking glass. Yeah. I Def- rarely, definitely. rarely used real synthesis because it takes a fair amount of time to get a good quality 
synthesis sound, to be, to be frank. Yeah. And something that starts off uh, digital and artificial is very hard to sell to the listener. Uh, you can tell that it's not real unless, as Jim said, it, you've crafted it perfectly in, in a way that you couldn't tell. But, uh, but something real it has a genuine sound to it. One of my favorite that Jim did, uh, I did it with him, was I thought brilliant and came out really well, is we, we ran a zip line. Uh, in the in the woods uh, where I'm I'm staying here, and we had a boombox on a pulley, oh. and and he would s- he would set audio playing of all these various engine drones, just like you know or something, yeah. and then he would zoom it down the zip line with microphones set up around the zip lines so that you get a natural Doppler. It's a oh what a great uh, if, idea. If if you if you like a Doppler is what happens when a car goes by and the right. pitch changes. Yeah. Um, and so by doing that and having it be a real thing, because there are a number of Doppler programs that will simulate it, but this was real. It had air pressure. It had the sound of the cable, even as, even though you think that would be a bad thing. It all combined to create this really unique, organic sound for every single one of these engines. And then those got reused as um, alien ship components as they fly by over and over and over again. Uh, like uh, those were always my favorite to pull out of the library. Oh, that's fantastic. Wow. That is, yeah. see, that's the kind of stuff uh, you would never know, you know, watching the show, you go, well, that's a cool sound, but oh, you don't know uh, that people are running around in the woods to make these sounds. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it just reminded me of another one. I, I took my grandfather's old beat up car, like a real clunker. Uh-huh. And I turned off the engine, uh, filled it full of microphones and then rolled it down a hill with me in it. <laughs> uh, and the rattling and banging as it hits off potholes and bumps oh. and stuff, uh, that became a pretty constant element in whenever the ships get hit with like a torpedo and you yeah. have that shaking sound. You'll hear the change in his coffee uh, <laughs> on, on his dashboard almost every time. <laughs> Best rattle ever. Yeah. <laughs> it was really, it was uh, old grandpa's car. That's fantastic. So how much of it is, you guys going outside of the studio and exploring nature and finding these things that are not within the studio. Because I pictured a studio filled with things like watermelons and, you know, mm-hmm. balloons and things that you could pop and smash and, you know, do all that kind of stuff too. But I didn't picture you guys going outside with microphones as much. Yeah. Well, and that's interesting. What you're describing is actually a different aspect of the sound art, and that's the Foley artist, and that's right. actually not what we did either. Uh, a Foley artist would be someone who moves cloth to, to go along with somebody grabbing someone's shirt or footsteps or all the little lifelike details, and they literally have a room filled with, you know, sand with the coconuts is the stereotype, you know. Right. Uh, we actually didn't do any of that. We did the creation of sounds for things that don't exist for the most part. Um, so... But anyway, sorry, Jim. But uh, I would say in general, we we spent most of the time in the studio because we needed to pull from libraries to to get the work done, and then every once in a while had time to do something fun outside. Yeah, we had all you know, we had massive sound libraries of virtually any sound in the world you can think of. You know, birds and uh, all kinds of animal noises and explosions, um, and so often we would manipulate sounds from our existing library to create new and different sounds. But, you know, whenever we could, we would go out and record other sounds that, uh, that might not have been a part of our library to start with. 
I remember another one. Uh, right outside your studio, Jim, I think you were might have been away, uh, there was a, a huge group of ravens, oh, yeah, uh, which, I be- which I believe was is referred to as a murder. <laughs> and uh, and they just, there were so many of them that they created this whirlwind of sound, just unbroken sound of ravens uh, screaming. And so I was out there recording there, probably dodging droppings left and right. But... <laughs> But but that's worth it, right? Because you could do something with that. Oh yes, yeah. And uh, I think it has menacing organic feel. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I think is most fascinating to me is the idea that you're hearing something. You know, I can walk by and hear that and go, "Boy, those are obnoxious ravens or crows or whatever's going on over there." But you're thinking, "I can record this and I can manipulate this in a way, and it'll sound like you know." You're probably already visualizing what you're going to do with it. You know, you kind of you or you know that you can use this later. Yeah, it feels like a treasure. Like, oh my god, yeah. that's that's valuable. I have to capture it. Yeah, and some don't even need to manipulate. I mean, that sound that Sean's referring to is a pretty bizarre sound, all on its own, and not yeah. too many people would be able to identify it, um, just because it's so unusual. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about episodes, say, on DS9 or Voyager, when they go to a new planet. And quite often it was it would be pseudo tropical, but the the soundscape didn't sound uh, totally alien. But you heard animals or bird like noises that weren't just quite birds that we know. So I wonder how much manipulation you were doing there. A fair amount. I mean, we would throw in maybe eighteen or twenty different bird calls that wouldn't be recognizable to most Americans. I think, and all those bird calls would be manipulated in some fashion so that. Even in their native land, they, they may not be recognizable. And sometimes we do things like uh, take recordings of, of chimps and other types of animals that have a bird quality and then pitch them up to bird level so that they sound like birds, but no birds we've ever heard of. Oh, okay. Fascinating. I just flashed on the uh, the movie Twister, and I was thinking about that because I remember seeing a special about how they did the sounds for the tornadoes. And I mm. one thing I remember is they took animal sounds like tigers and and EQ'd them or otherwise manipulated them so that the the twister itself is actually the sound of it is an amalgam of animal noises, which kind of makes sense given how wild it is. So um, you guys were doing that same sort of thing. You know, all sound designers use animal sounds, basically. Yeah. It's, a, it's a common means of introducing some kind of dramatic language to the sound. You know, a, a pig squeal is pretty expressive, and if you can yeah. squeeze that into some audio design component, it 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 makes it very expressive. So you're looking to uh, connect uh, with the the listener slash viewer, uh, I guess on on a conscious level, subconscious level, both. Like, is that part of the thought process? I think it's both. Honestly, yeah. it's just like music, really. You know, you're you're trying to point the viewer in a particular direction. If you want him to be frightened, then you, you, you've got that ability to do that. Um, and if, you, if, if you're looking to make it a peaceful you know, environment, then that's, that's something that we can achieve as well. And as you're doing that, you're also trying to sell reality. Uh, and you do that with a million tiny little details that no one would really pick up on. Um, so if you're in a, a field somewhere and a car in the very far distance is passing from right to left, you would actually have that car sound very quiet so that no one even knows that they're hearing it panning from right to left. Yeah. 
to try to stimulate the brain in a way that makes you believe that you're actually there. And with Star Trek, uh, if you're ever on a bridge scene and there's six people all tapping madly away at their plastic panels, in the background, probably completely inaudible, every single one of those taps has a beep and a readout and a sensor feeding it together uh, and a plastic hit from when their finger hits uh, and all there perfectly accurate to the frame. I know because I did it. <laughs> um, and and no one's ever going to hear that and think, oh, Ensign number three, uh, you know, just did a great flurry of beeps. But if it were wrong in any way, the brain would not recognize it, it or it would recognize it. It would say, this isn't real. This is, you know, something is off, but you wouldn't know what it is. And so I I love that attention to detail and the and the really good movies you can you can see that there too like just deep in the details it's all there. Yeah. So what as far as that goes because you're when you're watching a movie or watching TV I assume you're watching it to enjoy it but you're also listening. Yeah. As a professional. And and so as far as TV shows and movies as you guys were getting into sound editing and creation uh, what were some of your inspirations or did you find yourself going to watch and or listen to something to kind of feed your brain and get you jump started? I guess I have to acknowledge Ben Bird as being just a, like the Mozart of sound designers, what he did with uh, real organic sounds and how, how iconic those things became. You know, that he was an inspiration. You know, Doug Grindstaff from the original Star Trek, what mm -hmm. he did with a Hammond organ is quite remarkable as well. Uh, there, there are a lot of talented people in the business, yeah. no doubt about it. Yeah, I mean, really, any major budget movie will have impeccable sound design. Uh, there's almost nothing out there that is just awful. And when it is, it's really awful. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and it's I, obvious I remember to the layperson? Yeah, I would think so. Or at least something is unsettling. Yeah. Uh, you know, something took you out of that that story space. You know, um, one of the the positive examples was uh, the for me was the original Matrix had a lot of really unique sounds to go along with the the unique camera work at the time. Yeah. You know, um, and just really inspiring, just really great stuff. Um, yeah, but yeah, and and if you have to mess up, uh, it's better to have a bad sound that is in perfect sync with what's going on uh. than a wonderful sound that is slightly out of sync. The brain will forgive a bad sound, but it will not forgive something that's out of time, out of sync. Oh, that yeah, that kind of goes back to music, uh, like Jim was referring to, because they, you know, when I was playing music back in the old days, they said if you play the wrong note, just play it again, because <laughs> if your timing's right, it's it's. It sounds like it belongs, even if it's the wrong note. Yeah. Yep. Unless I'm way off, which happened a lot. <laughs> <laughs> then you're doing jazz. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say that, you know, Sean talking about uh, the beeps on the bridge and things like that, you know, that's that was the real grind of the show after many years and that you, you know, you just could not allow yourself to not be immaculate in your application of you know, the synchronicity and everything like that. And yet it's tedious to, to yeah. get each one of those finger taps in perfect sync. And uh, so that was the, that was almost the hardest part of the show was maintaining a certain level of quality over many years. Yep. Right. Yeah. I, 
I'm curious about a moment, uh, Jim, from Generations where Data starts breaking into a song on the bridge, and I hear that it was improvised where he does his little life forms, uh, precious little life forms, and he's scanning for life forms, and the computer that he's pressing is kind of playing backup <laughs> to his music. Did you intentionally do that so that the sound of the keyboard was playing. I'll have to go back and look at it, to be honest. <laughs> Without knowing the answer, I, I, gu sure. I guarantee that he did. Yeah, uh, sure. Jim is an, an accomplished musician um, as well, so uh, ah. there's no way that he didn't back that up. Oh, great. That's fantastic. fantastic. <laughs> I, I actually, Mike, I didn't catch on to that either. I have to go back and watch it myself because uh, I don't remember that. That's a good pickup. Fair, fair, long time ago now. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, but you, you, you know, you pointed to that tedium. Uh, so, and and I think Sean, you were talking about it too. So, if if somebody's touching something on screen, so you you said you're you're dealing with these, you're down to the frame to make sure you mm -hmm. get that timing right. So that's yep. where that uh, probably separates you from somebody like me, who if I'm putting together because I like playing around with sound effects and making little things, but. You know, usually it's good enough. I don't have to zoom way in to to cue them up right next to each other because I'm doing this to make people laugh. I'm not getting paid for one, you right. know. But uh, so that level of it, you know, just that level of exactitude. Uh, did you have to to work at that, or was that something you already had, you know, in your tool belt when you got into the work? Uh, for me, that's just mental illness. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, I would do that with literally everything I did. I mean, when I first started multi-track recording, I, I wired a boombox so that one tape would record onto another while recording on a microphone. Wow. And I would sit there for hours and hours and hours just carefully multi-tracking these horrible songs that no one would ever want to hear. But just <laughs> just that attention to detail, uh, that's something you're born with and you take medication to try to get rid of. <laughs> <laughs> but serves you well in your course of your career. Yeah. Yeah, if if you can find someone to to pay you for it, sure. <laughs> yeah, excellent. So, so did that work out for you, Sean? Because uh, when we were talking before before this conversation, you said uh, that you were a grunt. You know, you did the yeah. grunt work. So was that something that was put to you because of your mental illness, for lack of a better <laughs> term? <laughs> well, I, well, uh, Jim is my uncle, so right. uh, so there's no patism like nepotism. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's the best patism I know, and. Yeah. Um, so initially uh, I gave Sean all the work I didn't want to do myself. Yeah. yeah. And yet, I was incredibly exacting. I remember reviewing his, you know, his work on things like the beats on the bridge and, and uh, he probably thought I was insane because I would change one beep a frame or something like that, you know, but uh, I think we are much alike in temperament really and, and our attention to detail. And it didn't take long for Sean to move beyond those basics. That's for sure. Yeah, and, and honestly, no. I mean, I didn't. I didn't take any offense at all. I was just mad I missed a frame, uh, uh -huh. kind of thing. So, and, and those sort of things matter. And in in this particular type of work, uh, that that careful plotting of micro frames um, really does pay off. And so it, it it yeah, it fit my personality pretty well. Uh, I also did like. Uh, as I matured and was given more responsibility, the the creative aspects and you know creating something from scratch and um, and you know taking chances with with sounds and stuff uh, like that's all fun too. But you have to start off with that base level of perfect sync every single time. Okay, yeah. So that that has to be just exact. 
mm-hmm. uh, before you're going to move on <laughs> or do something else. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Oh, man, I don't know if I'd have the patience for it. I'm thinking about it. <laughs> um, the The worst part was uh, after a full night of work and the computer crashes and you have to start all over again. Oh, that was gosh. that was the part that where you begin to question what you're doing. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, yeah, what what was that like? I mean, you have because the, the maxim is save every five minutes. But I assume you get you move one little waveform. You're saving it right away or making sure you have mm-hmm. autosave on or something. Autosave, haha. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't the, around. The system we were using was actually created in the mid seventies, right? Oh, uh, wow. Made made famous by Frank Zappa, oh, uh, okay. and it was amazing as a sampler. The the versatility, the things it could do, the audio quality. It weighed five hundred pounds and needed a separate cooling room. Wow. Um, and cost two hundred thousand dollars back in the mid eighties. Yep. Uh, and it did have save buttons, but it was certainly not an auto save. And uh, at three in the morning, when you've been focusing on something for two hours and it crashes, and you realize you didn't hit that auto save yep. one time, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I had term papers go away like that, but nothing, <laughs> nothing like a you know an intricate soundscape. But uh, yeah. gee whiz, yeah, you've got to make sure you're you're on top of that. But uh, that sounds familiar. The three in the morning, uh, yep, malaise, and then <laughs> utter panic when it goes away. Um, oh man, I listened to so many episodes of uh, Coast to Coast with Art Bell. Yes, uh, <laughs> every conspiracy theory in the universe. <laughs> yeah, did you guys have a lot of late nights? You talked about the hours. So, what's a typical week like? If you, are you guys working on one uh, Trek episode at a time, or how does that work? Because I assume they're coming in in a linear fashion that way. Typically, one at a time. I mean, okay. on average, we'd get about a week to ten days for each episode. And it really depended on the complexity of the episode. We had some episodes, you know, episodes with the Borg or whatnot that were just enormously complicated, and you would spend every every waking hour and then some trying to get that show done. Yeah. And then very occasionally you'd get a talky episode, you know, where virt- virtually nothing happened, and I felt like I was cheating them, you know, <laughs> the money that they were paying me. Um, so, but, yeah, we, we put in a long... A lot of hours, no doubt about it. Yeah, and and when I was working out of Jim's studio, I would typically show up for the night shift. So there's a certain point in which Jim just had to stop working so that I could move on to the beeps or whatever the next thing was necessary. So I'm sure that helped being having a forced deadline. It wasn't rare that you know we would work 12-hour shifts. You know, like mm-hmm. you would wow. take over at nine o'clock at night, and I'd take over back at nine o'clock the next morning. Yep. Wow. Holy cow. And that's that was pretty constant, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, it really depended on the episode. But if you had a, a you know, a, a Borg series, you, you knew you weren't going to sleep much. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Every every little thing that moves on those, on the Borg a has a sound, right? Yeah, right. Sure. And the fifth Borg in the back who's yeah. just moving his head and he's got a flashy light that won't stop. Uh, every single light has to have a sound to it. Every single movement. Yeah. Uh, Again, even though no one's ever going to know. Layers yeah. and layers of, you know, multiple layers of sound for each of these Borg. It was, it's a lot of work. And that's before you get to the battle sequences. And, you know, one thing I want to stress is that, you know, we would do all the tedium stuff, the beeps and the boops, or even if it were just the Borg, we could get that done in the course of a week relatively easily. But then what would happen is that we'd get the animation delivered, uh, like 
a day or two two days before the mix, which is our deadline. Oh wow! And then you you you've got enormously complicated visual sequences that you have to fill in a hurry. Right. And so tedium turns into terror. <laughs> right in that moment. Yeah. And for, the... and for some reason, they they never accepted the fact that there's no sound in space, uh, and so that we could right. just hand it back. <laughs> yeah, this this beautiful battle should be absolutely silent, but exactly. you you get to so then so then uh, yeah, because I'm thinking about uh, you know when you have two ships circling each other firing phasers, maybe the, it, I mean that presents its own level of complication. But then I'm thinking about that arc in the last season of DS9 where you have 40 ships on screen all firing willy-nilly. I mean, what is... I mean, is it just... It's not just you two guys working on that. You've got a team, right? Well, you mean on the movies or the or the television show? Oh, uh, the TV, TV show for now, yeah. We should also mention um, uh, Tommy Tomita, who was our California uh, partner in this. He, okay. he was an equal partner as well. Yeah. Uh, did everything that Sean and I did as well. Right. So... So it would be the three of us, uh, and then for a while we had uh, a man named Merrick Hard working, uh, who's doing just background. So all the hums and tones, uh, and literally every room had a unique sound signature hum. Uh, and depending on where you were in the ship, everything had a reason. Everything had a, a particular tone. You could tell where you were with your eyes closed if you knew. Oh wow! Uh, and so Merrick would would handle at least the the background aspects of it. Uh, Okay. As we were getting a big production together, and Jim, that was your those a lot of those hums were your creations. Sure. Wow. Um, yeah, because of course on the uh, I'm thinking about the Enterprise D in the next generation as it's that signature hum is a lot of people use it to go to sleep. You know, they put it on. <laughs> there's a 10 hour version re- looping on YouTube that you can just put it on and go to sleep to. That wouldn't work for me. I can tell you that. Uh, well, no. I think you'd. I think you'd react differently. You'd have flashbacks. Exactly. Yeah. He'd be looking for the beep to put in. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Somebody's got to press a button eventually. Although Jim, I don't know if I told you there was there was one time I slept in the studio after a crazy night, and I I actually found a sample of a fan, and I played it on a loop on the synchrotron over the speakers, <laughs> over the studio speakers, so so that I could sleep in the chair. Yeah. That's good stuff. Well, Jim, you brought up the movies. Was there any big difference in doing sound for the TV shows and the movies? You know, for the movies, I had to work uh, in collaboration with Paramount Sound, which was, you know, the in-house sound department at Paramount Pictures. Uh And that was a different experience. I would move my studio into their facility, typically, and work with, uh, you know, the staff there. So I didn't have my crew, which was uh, stimulating and challenging um, on a different level. Uh, so, so in that respect, it was very different. And I was also often, you know, the supervising sound editor of the entire audio, including dialogue and foley and um, you know, dialogue replacement. So it was a very different experience for me working on those movies. Wow, yeah, that sounds like a heap of added responsibility when you get into the dialogue and the dialogue replacement and stuff as well. That's right. Jim, was was that when you were able to see Patrick Stewart uh, recording ADR, or is that just the the no, myth? No, you I know, when I was before I moved back to Vermont, uh, I was actually in the Modern Sound facility, and that was the company I was subcontracting to to do all this work that Sean and I did. 
And, uh, you know, all these actors would come into that studio to re-record their dialogue every single week. So you saw them all the time. Uh -huh. And, you know, just it was not difficult to sit on the ADR stage, the dialogue replacement stage, and watch them do their work. And you watch Patrick Stewart work, and you, you know what a professional he is. He's quite remarkable. Yeah, yeah. And even if he's doing ADR, he's got it. He's dialed in, it seems. He's and and that's the thing that a lot of people don't know is that virtually every single word that you hear on an episode or a movie is not the word that the actor said on stage. There's always something, some reason, some sound, some click, microphones not close enough to you that that audio is not usable. And so these actors have to come in and recreate the timber and the tone and the pacing of what they said on stage, sometimes even weeks or months after the time that they initially recorded it. And so the quality of an actor would come in with how precisely they could recreate that uh, feeling, the emotion, the the pacing and everything. And from what I always heard, Patrick Stewart was, was ace. He yeah. is a real pro, no doubt about it. He could, he could read a line completely out of context and, and just nail it in terms of, you know, emotive tone and, uh, just, just it would fit right in flawlessly. Yeah. I, I did have a question about ADR because sometimes uh, I was just watching an episode of Quantum Leap. I don't know why, but I was watching Quantum Leap, and it was, it was one of the first two episodes. I, I started to listen for this, you know, so I can just I'm sitting there watching it with my wife, and I go, "That's ADR." And sometimes it's totally it just the sound is so different. Well, that's bad ADR. Yeah, yeah. If I can tell, it's bad ADR. Absolutely. So, what makes it difficult to insert ADR that feels natural, makes it sound and feel natural? Well, I think it's two different things. One is the skill of the actor or actress. I mean, mm -hmm. as as much as I watched Patrick Stewart do it brilliantly, I have seen an equal, if not many more, a number uh, do it poorly, where they can't quite ca capture the the same inflections and the same dramatic uh, tone. Uh, so that's one issue. And then, then it depends on the skill of the mixer uh, who can EQ it and filter it in a fashion and make it sound like it's real, like it's going to fit in with the real production dialogue. That's a real art. Yeah, because you're and, taking something from a different environment and, and trying to place it in this, uh, this thing that's already been created. And I think that's where the challenge is because this line – I don't know what's his name was just Scott Bakula was just saying something and it just sounded like it was slapped in. Yep. Like, yeah. Oh boy. Oof. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, the acting part of it is, is an indication of how much of your on stage performance was intentional and how much was you just making stuff up at the time. Mm -hmm. And if it's all intentional and a choice, then your chances of replicating it later is much, much higher. Mm -hmm. If you're just making stuff up, it's going to be really hard to reproduce that. Okay. Sure. So I guess people who are improvising or doing different things each take are going to be a lot more difficult to do their ADR. Incredibly so. Yeah. So did you find that the most challenging aspect, having taken on all these different responsibilities for the movies, Jim? Well, it was very different for me. I mean, I, for the television show, I was only responsible for the sound design and sound effects. But for the film, I was, you know, a co-supervising sound editor with mm -hmm. another in-house in Paramount Pictures sound person. So that was a very different experience for me. What was uh, what were the timelines like? Because we, you gave us an idea for the TV show that TV shows, excuse me, that it was pretty tight. Uh, but how about for the movies? Given that they have a longer production schedule, 
we did we did get longer. But what was interesting I found about working on the movies is that uh, we spent probably half of our time recutting sound that we had prepared for film to recut picture. They're they're always trimming you know two frames off of this one angle mm. and ah. you know. Every single day, you got you got a change list that that indicates where you need to trim all the sound that you've already prepared. Uh, so, in some respects, yes, you get more time, but uh, you, you're devoting an awful lot of it to just keeping up with where the picture is at. Jim, uh, Pro Tools now has a function that will do that for you automatically. I love that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I was in the business too soon. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like having to do all that manually. I mean, you you get some time codes, but then you're you're back in there trying to get it exactly where it needs to be uh, because X number of frames have been removed, as you said. So or, you're or added, which is even more complicated. Oh, how so? Well, in that uh, if they add two frames onto this scene, uh, you've got to you've got to recut your picture and add that sound, and sometimes that sound doesn't last that long. You know? Ah, okay. Far easier to cut than than to add for sure. You might yeah. you might have to recreate the entire background hum if otherwise you might have this click as the new background hum is placed on top of the old background hum for two frames. Uh, you know that's that's very startling for the ear to hear. So you might have to start all over again. Oh gosh, <laughs> you guys are uh, incredibly patient. I think, from what I can tell. Um. I guess that's probably true. <laughs> yeah. It's just part of the job. You just come to accept it as what you do. Right. Yeah. And that's that's what's fascinating too is the you know, because I'm I'm a middle school teacher, so there's stuff I do that people would go, why do you have to do that? I'm like, well, you know, it's part of the job. So I yeah, I could totally being in it for so long, absolutely. I could just go, that's part of the job and it's what you do. Um but just having that patience for just those minute, just those tiny, tiny details. Um Maybe it is like having patience for a 13-year-old that can't control himself. So, <laughs> I always told Sean that it's better than digging ditches. Okay. <laughs> uh, and I've said there's some ditches that were far less difficult than some of the episodes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Was there a was there any read uh how should I say this? Did you guys do any uh did you guys upgrade or otherwise change some of the standard sounds that we knew from the TV shows for the movies? I'm thinking of like doors and phasers and that sort of thing. Cause uh, you know, they get a new ship here in the, in one of the TNG movies. And so it might have a different sound for some of the doors or the phasers or that sort of thing. Absolutely would make an effort to yeah. change it in some fashion. Okay. Yeah. I suppose. Yeah. Cause like when they, uh, I should say when they get the enterprise E it's a brand new ship and it's it looks different, and it's gonna be different. So you're you're helping to give it its own personality, and and you try to go with the storyline too. The the latest um, Enterprise with Scott Bakula was a much lower tech ship, and right. so all of the sounds we attempted to make a lower tech feel, something not quite as slick and I don't know modern as the earlier ships in the series, which were later in the. Timeline. So you've got to deal right. with that, right? Yeah. So how do you, yeah, I'm curious about that too, because uh, of course, as technology advances in sound and TV production, uh, you're kind of doing a throwback, sort of, right? Because uh, there's sounds of the 24th century, which are really mm. slick being made in the 80s and 90s. And then you've got sounds mm. of the 22nd century being made 30 or 
20 years later. Uh, so what, how did you, did you, Sean, were you on that team that was coming up? And Jim, I suppose you were too, having worked on the pilot. Were you guys on that team coming up with the sound library for Enterprise? Oh, yeah. And it was created, you know, on the fly too with, with episodes. So, yeah. Uh, Jim, Jim designed a lot of that. Um, and then we kind of took over uh, a lot of clicks, a lot of servos, a lot of mechanical mm. devices, whereas everything else, you know, the more modern ships you'd assume would be more, um, you know, far less mechanical. Uh, yeah. yeah. Metallic sounds, a lot of metallic sounds. Uh. Yeah, and were you guys drawing, do you think, from the original series, considering that Enterprise predates it? Everything is drawn from the original series. <laughs> yeah. I could tell you stories about meeting uh, uh, Gene Roddenberry, you know, in those initial days of the next generation and going through my sound design ideas for things like the transporter and trying to, you know, acknowledge the original sound of the transporters and things like that. And it was, you obviously had to reference that family of sounds. Uh-huh. And it would be always interesting to, to find some way to take an older sound and update it and make it much more subtle so that it wasn't so obvious, but, but referencing those, those sorts of legacy sounds. When you're referencing those kind of legacy sounds, do you have to figure out, kind of reverse engineer what they did to create the original sound? Yeah, I, you know, that transporter, again, I remember having to uh, figure out what the what the musical chord was that creates that original transporter sound. I found that it's, it's basically two parallel tritones. Um, so if you played on your keyboard, a, a D and E and uh, G sharp and A sharp. I think that's two parallel tritones, and that's that's the sound of the transporter. That's the chord, the musical chord. Ah. And uh, so what I did is I I created a tone using you know the old finger on the wine glass trick. Uh huh. I played that chord and then supplemented it with other bits, and it you know it's it's the transporter sound. That's fantastic. I didn't realize that it had that specific tonality. That's so cool. Try it on your piano. <laughs> yes, when we're done here, I'm going to run right over there and do that, actually. And then uh, it'll probably turn into some terrible fan fiction, but I'll have a good time. <laughs> Two tritones, one whole step apart. Okay. Interesting. So, well, so Jim, that, uh, that just brings to mind the question with your musical background. I mean, how much of it do you bring into sound design? Is it every day just about? I think so. I mean, you know, when I was working as in that electronic music lab at the University of Utah, yeah. uh, again, it, you know, it's it's a musical application of real-world sounds. They used to call it music concrete. And I regarded everything I did as an extension of that, basically. Uh, you know, if, if you listen to all the room tones of the, you know, the, the Enterprise and any other ship, it, it has a real musical quality, and it will generate... A response just by itself. Hmm, it, it'll yeah. have it, it'll have an overtone series that you know that may sound ominous or powerful or you know or light and positive. You know, it's it's that's all music. That's a great point because I I really like messing around with those ship sounds, especially the computer sounds, and they do they do communicate that kind of tone. Like the the deny beep is abrupt. Which you know, it's just no. You know, that's that no. Yeah. And then you've got the the accessing sound, which is it is musical, 
I can't approximate it with my voice, but I'm sure you'd know what I'm talking about when it's accessing information. Yeah. Um, I mean, it sounds like you might even be able to make some kind of symphony with all of these uh, pieces that you've put there into the Trek yeah, world. I, mean, I had to really work hard to keep it not getting too musical. I mean, uh, you, you didn't want you didn't want it sounding like they were playing an organ, and sometimes I feel like I failed on that front. But, uh, yep, everything has pitch, and everything promotes some kind of response. And the reason you wouldn't want to overdo the musical aspect is because there's going to be a score, musical score, placed on top of it. And God forbid you're in some contradicting key, it could all work terribly together. Absolutely. Yeah, so how do you avoid that if you're using... Uh, you know, tones on the musical scale. How do you avoid uh, making it uh, sound brown, I guess, for lack of a better term? <laughs> you know, occasionally we would we would give them sound design that would conflict with the music, and the music typically won. We would have to redo it and uh, either remove the tonality from whatever design component we provided or shift the pitch. Okay. So that now, it was complementary. Okay. And is that a function of because the music is a live orchestra and that's – you know, however many people. It's a lot people. harder to change the music after the fact than it is the sound effect. Right, that's what I figured it was. So you you kind of lost out by the nature of what uh, of the work around it, I suppose. And and the composers have much bigger egos typically. So. <laughs> <laughs> Did you guys ever run into that uh, as far as egos go? Just being you, you kind of had Hello? shoved. <laughs> yeah, you had something shoved back at you that you felt good about, or fit, you know, but at the same time, well you don't make the final decision. So how does, how does that work having, uh, having those uh, conversations? Well, Jim was the biggest ego I had to deal with. So. <laughs> we'll talk about that after he goes. <laughs> no, sometimes stuff gets sent back and, and you just take it and move on. It's part of the job. Come up with three options, give them the worst one first, um, you know, move on with that process. Ego is a part of the business. You just learn to deal with it as best you can. Yeah. So, guys, I hate to say it, but i got to go. I'll let you guys carry on without me. Hey, thanks well, Jim, a lot, Jim. We really appreciate so you talking to us. It was fun. It was uh, nice chatting with you. Sean, nice Talk to hear your voice. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Oh, thank God he's gone. Okay, I thought he'd now, never leave. Let's get into the nitty-gritty. <laughs> <laughs> How many times did he cuss at you on a given day? No, um, so... <laughs> So you kind of came. When did you come into the into the Trek game? Was it on Voyager? Is that right? Yeah, Voyager. I I started my apprenticeship at the at the end of season one, and then and then kind of worked through that whole season. Um, helped out on a couple of the films in a kind of a non official capacity, and then and then took over with with Enterprise. Okay. Uh, with with Scott Bakula. Yeah. And do you feel like, because uh, you said you, the, you're not... The series that killed Star Trek, the, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't I don't want to lay that at your feet. But yeah. the, the I, I'm curious about, because you had said earlier that you weren't, you know, weren't the biggest Trek fan. It was part of your life. Your uncle was working on it, so that was cool. Mm. Uh, but so did you feel, because we've talked to a lot of people who were Trek fans that were working behind the camera, and they weren't supposed to be Trek fans or tell anybody about it, at mm. least. But, you know, so they had skin in the game, and they had some kind of attachment to it. You know, they wanted to make it the greatest series they could. Uh, so for you, not having that intimate connection, I guess, was it kind of like another job uh, when you're working on Trek versus something else? Uh, yes, although it was such... Uh, a widely encompassing job that it really became the lifestyle. I mean, there there were no 
off times in between episodes until the season was over, in which case you stop working. But what Jim said, I mean, 12 hours a day for seven days a week uh, sometimes. And, you know, that is your lifestyle at that point. And, you know, I slept, dreamt, ate, breathed, uh, nothing but Star Trek uh, during that time. So, so yes, it's like a <laughs> marriage that you incorporate, but uh-huh. but I couldn't, you know, I couldn't tell you dialogue or scenes or right. names of any of the characters, uh, mostly because the the way that you view it when you're working on it is not sit end to end, watch the whole episode, enjoy the story arc right. and the B roll and all that. It's you're it's frame by frame, literally frame by yeah. frame. Did. And and by the way, the doors were literal plywood with someone with a rope pulling them. Right. And so they were always opening and closing at different rates. Oh. Sometimes they didn't even close all the way. And so you had to fake. You had to do a lot of artistry to make it seem like the door actually closed. Um, and just a million things like that that you know you just don't notice if everyone else does their job right. Yeah. Um, but are just you know they're factors of the fact that it's a, a real physical set and people are fallible. Yeah. And of course the way you're working on it any sense of narrative is lost because you're yeah. and you're not necessarily listening to dialogue anyway because yeah. you're you're timing these other things. Right. Yeah. I remember and and a lot of times when you see it uh one of my favorite instances uh, a lot of times when you see it the you don't even really quite understand what's going on and why the thing is happening. Uh, one of my favorites was uh was at species 8472 the the predator yeah, type yeah. type one. You got or, the or name alien. by the way. Good job. Oh yes. Uh <laughs> And and while the the first video that we get is some guy in a blue suit with these two ping pong balls in his hands <laughs> chasing people up and down the hallway. And and so, you know, we're trying to come up with what sounds are we gonna do? What is it even gonna look like? And yeah. then we get the the digital effects at the end of the process. Oh, that's what it looks like. Okay, well what might that sound like? And, right. You know. Uh, and so that kind of thing. I I just I I really did enjoy that part, the the behind the scenes aspect, the hearing the plywood clunk as the doors go. Uh, <laughs> everyone's narration in our videos that we would get was literally the the recording on the stage, not what you would hear on an episode. Yeah. So you'd hear somebody coughing in the background, and someone flubs their lines, but it doesn't matter to that particular scene, and all these other sort of realities that I thought were really cool. I like I like that part. Yeah, so you're, you're, I mean, that's kind of cool. Like, that's kind of the whole point of this podcast is we want to know what was going on. So you were living what was going on because you had the, essentially the finished video product and you're putting the sound to it. So you get to see it as it's made without all the bells and whistles, which is fascinating. That's certainly no bells and no whistles. We would insert those later. Yes. (laughs) And that's you. You're the bell and whistle guy. (laughs) That's right. So we, and I wanted to ask Jim this, but he had to go, but uh, it was his team that won these awards because there's, it's not just Jim Wilvington. It's right. four or five names. So for you, Sean, what was uh, what was that team aspect like working with sound? It sounded like people had their different some different roles. You named some names, and I can't recall them. Yeah, ten minutes uh, later. But no, uh, no worries. Uh, Tommy Tomita and uh, Merrick Hard uh, yeah. were the teams that that we worked with in the series that I was involved. For for me, it was different. I think than most people in the industry because I started remote and I never worked in. Los Angeles with established teams. You know, yeah. I never got to meet the producers. I don't know, didn't have lunch with, you know, everyone and build a, a real team aspect. So I, I knew the the one person locally and we would work these crazy hours and 
you know, knew that we could rely on each other. And, and Tommy and I would talk once a week or so as we came up with a game plan. And then right before mix, I would send him my work and he would rebuild it on his end. And we'd, mm-hmm. you know, troubleshoot that sort of thing. So it was a good, a good team. But, you know, working yeah. remotely, it's much more common nowadays, but you're isolated. You know, you're, you're sitting there in your underwear uh, on a conference call. Um, with, We're on a podcast with somebody you don't know. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It, exactly. <laughs> so it's it's not the same as, as like, you know, like three intrepid people working shoulder to shoulder to, right. to face down the horrible director or something, you know. So, um, yeah, because it sounds like other than you, for you know, as far as doing sound, everybody else is within a few blocks from each other on the Paramount lot. Yeah. So that, you know, you can go over to costumes and then run over to makeup and then see what they're doing yeah. Uh, in visual effects and that sort of thing. And and the people that we've talked to that worked on the lot said it was really great to have everybody so close in because mm-hmm. you could really communicate on what was going on. And if you wanted to preview the costumes and it would help you with you know some other aspect of things, you could. Uh, so mm-hmm. what were some of those challenges of that physical separation and being uh, isolated? How did you have to build that up with your team uh, out in L.A.? Uh, well, uh, I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I I got the work done on time. Uh, I was responsive to any of those last second edit requests, but there wasn't a whole lot of team building. And I do kind of regret that in hindsight. Um, you know, I'm kind of an isolationist, weirdo, you know, uh, record your own music type musician. Um and and I kind of let that get get on top of me. So every year I'd get invited to the 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 end of season parties where all the actors and everyone would be involved. And every time I wouldn't go because I didn't have any connection with those people. And right. I think looking back on it, that would have definitely been worth doing at least once and not letting my antisocialness kick in. But uh-huh. but honestly, the you know there were times when. Uh, working on a crazy deadline for week after week after week, and I'm talking to literally nobody. It was one, for me, funny moment where I was working, 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 and the phone rang, and I realized that I had forgotten how to speak because <laughs> I hadn't spoken with a human being in a month. Wow. And, oh, my gosh. And, and that's the kind of obsessive-compulsive that probably goes beyond what's necessary to put in beeps in the background kind of thing, but it certainly helps sometimes. Yeah. Uh, so so yeah, the I do regret that. Uh and uh I was nominated for an Emmy, we didn't win, but uh I could have gone to the Emmys, you know. Right. And and been there with the team if if we had won or just just be there, just experience the whole thing and I just never saw that as a priority and I kind of regret that now uh in hindsight, but yeah. Hey. Well, I got to imagine that's one of those it's a rare thing to get nominated for an Emmy. You know, it yeah. doesn't happen to a lot of people that work in the industry even. So, yeah. um, yeah, th- that's some of those things where it's, well, I can go have this experience, but I have to leave the house. And I totally understand <laughs> that, that yeah. idea that I have to go be social. Uh, yeah. and so it's, it's worked both ways for me where I begrudgingly go and then have a wonderful time or, uh, I go and I go that went about the way I thought it would. <laughs> and I'm never doing it again. Yeah, and the you know the few times that I have extended, it's always gone well. There's never been anything particularly unpleasant. Uh, there was a weird time I had to go out to Los Angeles uh, due to our our union rules. I had to go get a physical out in L.A. Couldn't oh, do it remotely, so I traveled all the way out there for a physical. 
weird, but but anyway, and, the, and then that's when I visited the mixing stage and I met all these people that I've been working with for 12 years and never actually seen their face. Uh, uh, you know, got to meet Tommy. Uh, again, going through thick and thin and battle after battle and, and having each other's backs for 12 years. I had no idea what he looked like. Right. You know, it's just, and, and again, I think that's more common nowadays, but at that time, you know, working remotely was such a different, weird thing. So you kids have it a, easy with your with your video cameras. Yeah, you were kind of a pioneer of the remote uh, job experience then. Yeah, the the no dress code workplace. Yes, yes. Yeah, uh, what a wonderful thing. Uh, so, what are you doing nowadays? Are you, you still in the sound business? A little bit. Um, I work for a software company and I create online training sessions uh, for people in that. It's the most boring least creative thing in the universe but uh, I, I'm also in a podcast I started with my brothers called uh, Wisdom of One where we we looked at the Dungeons and Dragons comedy universe and decided that we needed one more um, <laughs> and but I get to do some sound design there uh, and it's not it's not the same level uh, of yeah. with Star Trek but I get to kind of break out the old the old skills and look at my giant library that I still kept and uh, get to get to do a little bit of creativity it's fun. Um, so that works as an outlet for you if you're not yeah. doing it professionally. The creative exactly. side of it, good. Yep, yep. And uh, what it really does is gives me deadlines and crazy, unrealistic goals uh, again. So that that all feels familiar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so th- that's kind of comforting in a way, maybe. You know, as as painful as it was, it suits my personality. You know, yeah. uh, you have two days to do three weeks worth of work. Go uh, and. I'll just literally drop everything and and somehow find a way to make it work, which is bad practice. I don't recommend doing that because then people expect you to be able to do that. Yes, exactly. So to pull from Star Trek: The Next Generation, which you don't watch, uh, hmm. that's that's what uh, when uh, oh gosh, I'm gonna blow it. Mike can help me though. When Scotty shows up and yep. uh, he's talking to Jordy and and uh, Jordy says, "Yeah, I'll have it done in half an hour," and and uh, Scotty says, "Don't don't tell him how long it's actually gonna take." Pat it a little bit, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's right. Uh, what was it? Over, what is it? Under promise and over deliver. Yeah, that's yep. perfect. Yeah. So, any aspiring sound people out there, uh, that's good advice. Sounds good. I'll try. Yeah, yeah, and pay attention to the little things. Uh, yes. I think that's that. That is obviously the biggest part. Anyone can make a, a really cool lion roar underneath your car, stopping and make it sound impressive, but. Uh, it's it's the little pebbles flying out of the wheels that pan left to right that that sell it that make yeah. you a a good editor as opposed to creative. You got to be both. Yeah. Oh, what a great example! Because that really puts you in there. That puts you in that scene. Yeah. yeah. You need to be able to to feel the dirt in your teeth um, if if it's kicking it into the screen like. Wow. Yeah. Well, excellent. That's really helpful for me. I mean, just hearing you say those kind of things, because I'll do little funny things. And the the thing I'm really working on, or I will spend the time on, is I want to get the timing just right on this sound effect or on this this drop or whatever it's going to be so that it's perfect and gets a laugh, right? So that's, yeah, you definitely got to make it, you got to make it so that it's believable, but it's it just hits that right timing and it just hits whatever it is that you're trying to hit. So yeah. that's that is the fun part of it when I really want to knock something out of the park. And different styles of work have different styles of sound of course because the the old kung fu movies are notoriously out of sync. It's it's a joke right. and it's it's become yeah. normal because that's the genre. Yeah. Um, 
and that's because everyone expects it, but yeah. it also drives me crazy. But uh, <laughs> you know what? That that reminds me of the movie Kung Pao Enter the Fist, which is just a total parody of that idea of the badly mm-hmm. dubbed movies. And so the the dubbing's terrible, and you know the most of the people the voiceovers are saying nonsense, right? And then the sound effects are just insane because they yeah. are purposely mistimed and everything so yeah i mean would you be able to watch a movie like that and enjoy it or do you think yes. it would uh yes it. it's uh <laughs> it goes with the suspension of disbelief you, yeah. if if you know what you what you're going into uh and that it's it's not a high budget uh movie it's not shakespeare it's it is what it is absolutely sure Excellent. Um, but and fist fighting reminds me of just another thing quickly about sound design so uh, a lot of sound design is completely unrealistic in terms of what a sound actually is. Uh-huh. If if you've ever heard someone get punched in the face, yeah. it is an incredibly boring, flat, light sound. It doesn't sound impressive, right. even though it's a horribly you know violent thing that just happened. And so in movies it, or in any TV shows in sound design, we are layering three to four to six sounds for that punch. Yeah. And so there'll be a light slap. There'll be a bone break. There'll be a, 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 the saliva moving in your mouth as it, as it gets crammed against your teeth. There'll be a drum hit, a yeah, super low the bassy. Yeah. Uh, there'll be the arm whoosh that doesn't happen in real life, but right. it, you can't sell movement without it, you know. Yeah. And like all of these completely unrealistic things. But if you didn't have it, it would look fake to everybody mm-hmm. because we are so conditioned to the storytelling aspect of these sounds. Um, and and it's it's really fun to to uh, recreate reality in a way that everyone's been programmed to expect. That's fascinating that all those sounds come together to make something, and that's what we imagine it to be. When, like you said, right. it's just a a flat thud. Yep. But we come to expect that big uh, drum hit. You know that yep. uh, <laughs> that I, shakes our couch. I think that's how it feels uh, getting punched from the inside. Yeah. Is you you hear it like that? <laughs> Possibly, yeah. I've, I haven't been punched in so long. i got to go back and find out. It's been a while. I'm not in a hurry to, to test it. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. Uh, that, that was fascinating. Thank you for talking to us, Sean. I really appreciate it. Of course. Anytime. Yeah. Thank you for um, having me. And yeah. Jim says thank you for having him, too. So I and to Wisdom of One, you can find on Apple yep. Podcasts. Yep. Wisdom of One, wisdomofonepodcast.com if you want the web. Yeah. A bunch, of, bunch of nerds yelling at each other and trying to be funny. Pretty good. <laughs> you almost described this show. Yeah. Uh, great. Uh, well, thanks again, Sean, and uh, take care and enjoy making sounds. It's uh, excellent. I've been enjoying. You know, we enjoy Trek, and the I think the the thing that's most tangible are those sounds. It's those are the things that really stick with us. The transporter sound, what have you. Those are so iconic. We'll take those with us, um, and if you hear it, you know what you're watching. You know, that's <laughs> the best part. Yeah. It's a palette that that in that introduces the story and gives you a universe to step into. Absolutely, and it's unmistakable. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it, and uh, uh, stay in touch. Will Great. do. Oh man, see, there's so much to take from that. Really in depth conversation. We got to hear from the guy that put it all together as far as Jim goes, and then the self described grunt in Sean, who got to do a whole lot of frame by frame sound editing, which sounds like it would be maddening. Oh, he man. did it. Yeah, I definitely don't have the patience of those fellows. Not at all. But what do you think you learned today, Mike? 
Uh, I learned so much. Uh, one thing that stuck with me that was just so amusing was that uh, every time the Enterprise gets hit, you'll hear somewhat of a sound of uh, Sean's grandfather's truck rolling down a hill <laughs> with uh, the change rattling in the, in the change drawer. <laughs> so every time the Enterprise gets hit, there's that sound and the actors on camera are bouncing around like crazy and the camera's moving up and down left to right. Right. So all these great, cheap little things come together for a spaceship getting hit by some kind of energy beam. Right, right. For the Fantastic. most. Yeah, exactly. Futuristic thing you can imagine. Uh, I love our low budget effects. It makes me so happy. Or just those simple things like the truck rolling down the hill. Uh, on a similar token, I guess I what I learned was you have to have that creativity, as in rolling a truck down a hill, I suppose, but you also have to have some kind of personality disorder to work in sound editing. Those guys put forth tons of effort, nitpicking, getting it down to the frame to get the, when the finger touches the panel, that's when the sound comes and making sure it's absolutely perfect. And then right. having to take last minute direction from a producer who says, I don't like that. Right. <laughs> Thanks, producer. Or, or make it sound time. greener. Right. Everybody knows what that means right off the top. <laughs> Good gravy. So thanks to those guys for their hard work, really bringing the soundscape of Trek to life and, and just making those iconic sounds that we love so much. Absolutely. Yeah, and thank uh, both of them for talking to us. Uh, I'm really glad we had both of them, actually. I think that that added a lot. A lot of depth to the conversation. Yes. Oh, boy. I'm looking, I'm, I'm looking at my papers here, Mike. See, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a sound. Of, here, listen to that sound right here. Wow. Wow. Wow, I made that with uh, two sticky notes. I'm looking at my papers here. We have a big guest next week for episode 20. Computer, why don't you tell the nice people who we're talking to next time? Your next guest is Susan Sackett. That is not a computer malfunction, people. We are actually talking to Susan Sackett. That's right. Susan Sackett was Gene Roddenberry's personal executive assistant from uh, the last 19 years of his life. Yes, indeed. Until his passing. So she had intimate access as far as the production of Trek, uh, the films, TNG, and she has a lot to say. That, you know, so we're, we're really excited to, to talk to her. We'll talk about it more next time, but uh, you can find her on uh, eBay. She's selling a lot of great stuff. She wrote a book about her experiences with Gene, and you can find all that. Just I think you just search for Susan Sack at eBay, and you'll find her. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, she's got, yeah, tons of uh, memorabilia and such from her days at Trek that she's uh, – now selling out into the world, which is kind of interesting. And we will talk to her about all that wonderful Trek history that she was a part of. Absolutely. Well, Josh, it's been a good, it's been a long road. <laughs> oh, no. Don't do it. <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh, thank goodness. I thought we were going to get some acapella there. Getting from there to here. That's what I feared, folks. It's time for us to say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Stay safe out there. Mind your sound effects. It has been made so. Thanks for listening. Live long and prosper.
Making It So is produced by Mike Mann and Josh Bald with associate producer Mark Schultes. Audio was quote-unquote engineered and edited by Josh Bald with musical interludes by Graham Ferguson and theme music by Brian Stromitz. Make It So. Making It So is an unofficial production of the United Federation of Planets.